What a fitting song uh, based on or in connection with the passage that we looked at this morning. And I think so fitting, all of it being brought together, not by any design of ours, but just providentially as the Lord brought us to that text this morning and then to this hymn tonight and to the discussion here tonight that really maybe we could just consider an extended illustration of what we've discussed today. Let's remember that um, our author of Hebrews chapter 11 spoke of those who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, and became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, likely a reference to the prophet Isaiah. Tradition says he was sawn in two with a wooden saw, you can imagine. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, but they have now. And we come uh, to this story of William and Mary Nib. <clears throat> uh, just a couple of notes before we really dig in. That is, um, yes, this was done at our pastor seminar in September of 21. So those that are, were part of that, you're getting a, a repeat, though I have beefed it up and tried to uh, rework some things that I think uh, have improved it. And let me also say that this is really intended uh, with no other idea than that it will edify. It will be edifying to the Christian. And we wouldn't do this uh, without it. It's not just historical interest, but that there is really an investment in our, in our faith as we learn from others in biography and learn what other Christians have endured as we've uh, been doing all day today together. Uh, I was introduced to William Nib by Mark Dever. He handed me a book one day, a little summary of William Nib's life. I read it uh, in the airport on the way home and, and, and thought, this, I've got to pursue this further. So just want you to know, I don't think there's a lot written on this man's life, but there is a memoir that's a recording of basically stringing together things that he wrote in letters to people to tell the story that was uh, put together by a man named Hinton, I forget his first name at the moment, but uh, Hinton uh, recorded that. So that's where I'm drawing from, is from original sources, uh, letters that were written to give us a sense of, of this man's life, this family's life. <clears throat> but in the pre-dawn hours of June the 7th, 2020, city officials in Bristol, England, fished out a pretty strange catch out of the harbor lassoed by the feet and hoisted head down from the murky waters, engineers and divers collaborated to crane out the larger-than-life bronze statue of James Colston, an erstwhile British sea merchant and philanthropist who lived 
from 1636 to 1721. Days earlier, protesters toppled and vandalized Colston's image, then shoved it kerplunk into the harbor. Why? Because Colston was a key player in the Atlantic slave trade. Why did Bristol City Council recover the statue? Because it's a working harbor, and they thought it imprudent to allow such a chunk of metal to be sitting in a working harbor. But what seemed prudent to petitioners from the nearby town of Kettering, England, was to match the toppling of Colston's image by erecting one in honor of William Nibb in the city where he was born, Kettering. Perhaps the veneration of Nib would counterbalance the infamy of Colston. And indeed, I would argue that it would. 200 years after his birth in Kettering, England, at least some in the city have not forgotten the missionary to Jamaica, William Nib. There is a plaque here that points to his presence in that town. And you see they're missionary and emancipator, and we'll talk uh, about that here at length tonight. But as we consider his life uh, in the news here very, fairly recently, uh, but as we consider his life, there's three pieces that I think are really important to understand as a backdrop. So understand I'm giving you some context that's really vital to understanding the man's life. The historical setting, first of all, the British Empire. During Queen Victoria's nearly 65-year reign, the British Empire doubled in size and reached its zenith of worldwide influence. Nib lived eight years into Victoria's reign. He did not see the zenith, but he served within the range of it. During Nib's life, the British Empire was powerful and it was wealthy. And Nib repeatedly tapped those resources for gospel enterprise. We must secondly understand England and Jamaica. England was the established, wealthy, proper, dignified, law-honoring older brother to the colony of Jamaica. Just watch this arrow there, 4,600 miles across the Atlantic Ocean from England and uh, I've got that kind of centered there at Liverpool, uh, in that area, or Bristol rather, and uh, to Jamaica, the, the colony, a colony of the British Empire. And England's, in England, at this time, one's reputation was paramount. Community approval and public shaming were taken far more seriously than they are today. It's really vital that we understand that context. We have, from our Western individualistic perspective, we have a tendency as Americans to think, I don't care what anybody thinks of me. We really do. But we tend to say it that way. Uh, I'll be an individual. And being an individual, we get patted on the back and the like. Not so with England. You had to prove yourself. Your reputation was very important. And working through channels of authority was very significant. Give just uh, should have shown this, but just south of Cuba is the island of Jamaica. And as we get to Jamaica, our first stop will be Kingston, and then a major uh, focus up on the north coast, Falmouth. 
where uh, Nib would spend most of his ministry. But back to the point at hand. The British colony of Jamaica, by contrast with England, so think powerful, wealthy, your reputation is really important, doing things the right way is really important, the English way. The colony of Jamaica, by contrast, was the wild, wild west. Jamaica was uncouth. It was like the adopted brother of England. Uh, It was primitive, unpredictable, less concerned with justice, sometimes nearly unhinged. As far as the empire was concerned, Jamaica's essential purpose was to supply Britain with what? With sugar. That's why you're here. They had many other things that they were able to produce, but this was really the key idea. Sugar, molasses, rum, but from the sugar plant. Uh, This painting was done the year that Nib arrived in Jamaica. So giving kind of a sense of one of the plantations uh, that would have been raising sugar. This is an interior. You see the, uh, the, the first being a coastal plantation. This one in the very center, the geographical center of Jamaica. Just giving a little sense. And by the way, if I'll point over to this one here. If you just look right in here, in those trees, that's the, those were slave buildings, where slaves would have lived that worked the plantation. So planting sugar, harvesting sugar here is just uh, what was the, the major focus. And in some sense, Britain could forget that it existed for any other reason than to supply sugar. And with the supply of sugar, of course, there was the ability to make uh, great wealth. Um, the sugar was uh, processed there in Jamaica and uh, almost entirely by slave labor. Uh, The uh, transatlantic um, slave trade had ended some time before Nib's birth, but around the time of Nib's birth. But uh, as as, um, slavery was still in uh, force in Jamaica at this time, this is how... um, These crops were manufactured. Now, these pictures were taken right around the time that Nib would have been there. So the people that he's going to be ministering to are a long ways from getting to Jamaica yet at this point in the story. But these are really pretty accurate to the people he would have ministered to and seen. Uh, These are are, uh, photographs taken in the the range of Nib's life. Uh, You just see all of these as sugar fields and slave labor. Third point in background and context is the Baptist Missionary Society. The Baptist Missionary Society was formed in 1792 in Kettering, England by 12 particular Baptist ministers. I think Kettering is where Nib is born and there is this missionary society that that is raised up by, by 12 uh, pastors. They were particular Baptists, and the uh, title of the missionary society was the Particular Baptist Society for the Propagation of the Gospel Amongst the Heathen. We'll use the less cumbersome term of the Baptist Missionary Society. But at home, this society of nonconformist Reformed Baptist churches remained independent of the Church of England. To understand the Church of England, supplies its pastors, pays its pastors, chooses its pastors. 
and uh, the Baptist missionaries or the Baptist churches were nonconformists, so they were not part of that system, and I think uh, for good and biblical reasons. In Jamaica, the Baptist Missionary Society stood at severe odds with the uh, state church. The state church obviously had much more access to, to resources of the British Empire. This put the Baptists at great disadvantage uh, in the island as well as in the British Isles. Uh, it also afforded them very little respect and even open hostility with Church of England ministers in Jamaica. To remove any doubt of what William Nibb thought about the state church, he once asserted this, and I quote, the Church of England destroys more souls than it saves. So that, it, this was not an evangelical uh, um, manifestation of the Church of England, but this was the state church, the established church, the majority uh, church, and financially well-heeled, but very much opposed to the gospel at this point. At any rate, the committee of the Baptist Missionary Society wielded considerable authority, and Nib's missionary efforts always passed through it. They determined who went and where you went and when. They determined the raising and allocation of money which made things happen or not happen. And like English society in general, the Baptist Missionary Society was a subculture in which reputation was carefully cultivated and a highly valued commodity. I won't say a lot more about that, but if you have that lodge in the back of your head, it'll make a lot of sense out of some of the things that, that take place in Nib's ministry. You had to prove your reputation, your character. Charges of, uh, against you were taken very seriously. So, Kettering, England, a town with a strong, nonconformist, missionary-sending local church presence, is the town where William Nibb is raised. In his early life, we'll move to that now, uh, William was born September 7, 1803, along with his twin sister Anne, two of eight children born to Thomas and Mary Nibb of Kettering, England. I'll just say this right now. They weren't very imaginative with names, and it really causes some trouble because his mom was Mary and his wife was Mary. His father was Thomas and his older brother was Thomas. His name is William and his son's name is William, so it, it gets a little confusing, but uh, wave at me if it's not clear who, which one we're talking about. But uh, William's father, Thomas, was unconverted. Uh, he was a tradesman of humble means. Uh, William's memoirs are, are really sad. He hardly ever mentions his father, and when he does, it is usually a letter that is pleading to him for his conversion. There's no evidence that the man ever turned to Christ. William's mother, Mary, by contrast, was a devout woman, of winsome spiritual influence, which had a lot of influence upon William's spiritual formation. Mary's pastor uh, of the nonconformist church in Kettering described her piety as this, and I quote, not only above the common rate, but it was highly intelligent and attractive. That's a great line. Highly intelligent and attractive. She was a woman of robust faith, of stout endurance, and considerable charisma who won the affection and respect of all of her children. Growing up in Kettering, William received only three years of formal education. You look at the way that he writes, and it's, it's pretty amazing, and obviously a lot of education was taking place in the home, but only three years of formal education. 
And at age 12 or 13, he was apprenticed to a businessman in the port city of Bristol along with his brother, Thomas. So they take off. Uh, Kettering to Bristol is not very far by our standards with automobiles, but in that day, it was a fair piece. And uh, these young boys are sent off to apprentice there in Bristol. And it's Mary's letters that really uh, helped to form the spiritual foundation that William develops during those years. As he, he distinguished himself in Bristol as a boy full of life, of vigor, he was athletic, competitive, sometimes unruly, and fitted with a God-given capacity to invest his whole being in, with resolute devotion to anything that he saw important. And in his youth, it is said that what he found as most important included gambling for money by playing marbles. However you do that, that was, that was his interest. He was very competitive and uh, loved that game. But he was without question a people person, kind, generous to a fault, winsome, vivacious, and well-liked by anyone who chose to side with him. It was here in Bristol around age 18 that William was converted under the ministry of Reverend John Ryland at the Broadmead Chapel. So again, Kettering, one of the pastors of that group, and one of the churches there, he came to Christ as Savior. His written testimony of faith, we don't have time to share it here tonight, but it shows a solid understanding of the gospel. It shows a deep conviction of sin and a rejection of his infant baptism as having anything to do with his relationship with the Lord. It also displays a keen sense of the importance of church membership. This is a letter written to his mother, and I I include it here because I think it explains a lot about what motivated him as a missionary. He said, I've for some time past entertained thoughts of joining myself to a Christian community. Oh, that I may duly count the cost, and that I may not rush heedlessly into one of the most serious duties of the Christian." To identify with the local church, one of the most serious duties of the Christian. He lived that out to the end of his life, and we'll see that. In Bristol, Thomas and William commended themselves as devout evangelists over time and as Bible teachers serving some of the most destitute neighborhoods in Bristol. So here's these young men uh, growing up together in this environment and getting out into the really difficult neighborhoods and reaching young people for Christ. It is indeed a common theme that you will read in Christian biographies uh, of, of those who were used by God, such as Hudson Taylor, John Payton, uh, William Nibb. You put them all, they had the same type of experience. They showed themselves as evangelists before they were evangelists before they were missionaries. Uh, God was doing a work of preparation in their hearts and in the experiences of Thomas and William in their late teens. And there, were, there was a, a good response to their teaching of the Scriptures. So in the hotbed of John Ryland's ministry and the Baptist Missionary Society in Bristol, Thomas, the older brother of William, was chosen to go to serve as headmaster of a missionary school in Jamaica. Now that fact, okay, your son is going to Jamaica, going to teach at a school. 
that's a wonderful thing, but it doesn't hit us the way that it hit them. Let's think about it from the perspective of Thomas's mother, Mary. Mary had to assume, as with all overseas missionaries, that she would never see her son again until they were reunited in heaven. That was just the way it was. It was 4,600 miles across the Atlantic Ocean. You had to have a really specific reason to come back. She faced the reality, not only that, but that there was a high probability that her son would die of a tropical disease sometime in the next few years. Missionaries that went from England to Jamaica to these tropical environments died at a very high level. Facing this strain, she wrote these words to Thomas. We get a a feel of her uh, character. She said, When the boundless ocean rolls between us, we, my dear Thomas, shall have the consoling idea that both are traveling to the same heaven. And that, should we meet each other there, separation will be no more known. I mentioned this this morning, but you just see this deep belief in the reality of heaven and how it, it enables risk and mission. After receiving the requisite three months training to take the headmaster post. Think on that. (laughs) You can lead a school after three months of training, but again, they're learning a lot at home and uh, just being taught how to do this. Thomas sailed to Jamaica. He was a special young man. It's amazing uh, what he accomplished in the time that he was there. Uh, But his fitness for overseas ministry was just evident to all. And and the committee of the Baptist Missionary Society sent him out willingly and noticed him or or recognized him to be a very effective missionary before he ever left. And so he landed in Jamaica in January 20 of 1822 and began sending letters to William, assuring him that there was a place for him to serve there as well. Uh, Little did he know what his little brother would accomplish. But at that point in time, the committee wasn't so impressed with William. They were not sure that this guy didn't have a little too much wild in him to actually make this happen. And so they sent Thomas, not William at this point. But as William writes back to his brother Thomas, just I'm going to characterize a few things that come out of those letters. The first is a zeal for the conversion of African slaves. He is, he is zealous for that. He longs for African slaves to hear the gospel. Secondly, a desire to serve as a schoolmaster like his brother. He really wanted to do that. And uh, thirdly was a lack of confidence in his ability to preach or pastor a church. It's amazing to think of that, but he just I, I think I can teach. I, I, I'm pretty confident I'm not ready to pastor a church, or maybe ever will be. But also, fourthly, a refusal to presume upon God that he would qualify as a missionary, and so a complete submission to the committee to recognize him for this task or not to. And he would rest in the committee's decision. These are just things that he expressed in his letters. Then, a bitter providence 
rocked the Nibs world, and it convulsed the committee. Three months after arriving in Jamaica, Thomas died of a tropical illness at age 24. Thomas's death did nothing to quell the growing zeal in William's heart to proclaim the gospel to enslaved people of Jamaica. The committee still had reservations about him. Under Ryland's direction, however, they appointed William to replace his brother Thomas in Kingston. Thomas was easily identified as having all of the qualities and capabilities of a faithful missionary, not so much with William. But as Hinton observes, again, the, the one collecting his memoirs, he, only God knew who William was. He was the man, and I quote here, the man to mount the whirlwind and control the storm. Dr. Ryland did not know that the storm was rising. And it just reminds us as we look for missionaries, as we seek missionaries, as we uh, seek to call our own to the field, that we look for missionaries that look like and smell like missionaries. Responsible young men and women who are certain to handle their calling well, but we must never forget that God sovereignly uses others to accomplish great things against all expectations. Thomas was of the first, William of the second, but the storm was rising, and there was a call on this unique man's life to fit that call. Before setting sail for Jamaica at age 21, two developments that we need to recognize. The first is William's marriage to Mary Watkins, a well-speaking member of the Broadmead Chapel there in Bristol. So, I don't know, maybe they met at a church social or after a service or something like that. But he's 21. We don't know, we don't know much at all about Mary. There's not much has survived, but uh, she was probably younger. And if you can imagine, he's 21. Let's just say that she's 19 or 20. And, and one month after their wedding, they set sail for Jamaica. They expect as that young couple to never see their homeland again. Second development is the last conversation of, between William and his mother before departing Kettering. Mary, of course, would have liked to be at Bristol and see her son off, but she was bedridden with illness at the time, and she had to bid farewell to her son. This is just three months after the death of his brother in Jamaica. After William left her bedside, so he says his goodbye at her bedside, goes out of the house, and she, I think from an upper window, second floor window, she pulls back the curtain and she calls out to William below. And these are the words that he records of her comment. Remember, I would rather hear that you have perished in the sea than that you have disgraced the cause you go to serve. And that's something. This parting farewell says much about her devotion to Christ and his cause. It may say something about her fears for William. Uh, do not disgrace us, she says. She knew that he was full of vim and vigor, and uh, it might not have comforted this mother in that moment. 
but I'd, I'd just meditate for a moment on it. I'd rather hear that you have perished in the sea than that you have disgraced the cause you go to serve. Think on that comment in our day. In our therapeutically psychologized day, that would have been seen as very much inappropriate. And there may have been a better word. I'll give to her that she probably wasn't feeling too great. But what are we going to say to a woman who's willing to put two sons on the altar? She knows that William could die at sea, and she knows that she'll see him in glory. But if he shames Christ, that would shred her heart, and that would torpedo her sacrifice. Death is no risk when you believe in heaven. Sin is. And speaking of death at sea, wow. This is, again, a picture from the year that Nib arrived in Jamaica, not on this ship, but that's the type of shipping that would have been done 4,600 miles across the ocean, the open sea. And they set sail across the Atlantic in 1824 as a young couple, and that would put your life at considerable risk. Uh, the Nib's three-month journey from November 5th of 24 to February 12th of 25 included an encounter with a hurricane, a fire on the ship's deck that could have sunk it, and genuine fear of pirate attack. <laughs> that's, that's what you face to just to get where you're going. In the hurricane, control of the ship was totally abandoned. Fearing that they would run aground, the captain prepared to cut down the mass and the rigging just to, just to slice it all down to the deck and cripple the ship. But just as they were beginning to do that, the seas began to calm a bit and they were able to make their way forward and weathered that storm. William's letters on this journey by sea fluctuated back and forth between an aching heart for his homeland as he views it from the ship and see, says goodbye to England forever, he thinks. Uh, it's, it reflects on people, the people that are friends that he misses and knows he'll never see again, and the church, church the pain of not gathering with God's people on the Lord's Day for three months. That one we can understand a little better. Uh, but he, he, just, he was just in sorrow that he couldn't gather with God's people. But through all of that pain, as he expresses it very honestly, it's the gospel zeal, a zeal for the gospel that wings his way to Jamaica without regret. There's no regret. I know that I'm doing what God wants me to do. Little, is, as I mentioned, is known of Mary today, but her peaceful trust in God, that is Mary, his, his wife, little is known of her, but her peaceful trust in God on the journey speaks for itself. In the midst of the hurricane, as it seemed probable that the ship would be swallowed by the raging sea, William reported this. He, these are his words. My dear Mary felt a perfect resignation to the will of God. 20, 19 years old, however old she is. She's in this raging sea. She later put it more poetically. 
She said, "'Tis sweet to lie passive in his hand and know no will but his." And I, I think the only way you write that is you're, you've already died. And she left Bristol, England. She let go of her life. And so if God was to take her down in the sea, she's already gone. She's ready to meet him. And there just seemed to be a perfect peace. We have only a murky idea who we actually marry on the day we speak vows of lifelong fidelity. But Mary Watkins Nib proved to be a spiritual rock and an ideal helper to her William. While little is known of her, suffice it to wave this banner over all that we say about William. We're going to talk about him. She's in the middle of all of it, but just the way things were recorded in that day, we don't know a lot about her. But an excerpt, he wrote this letter to his daughters some years later. And he says this of his wife, I attribute most of my success in my missionary career to your excellent mother. While we are mutually impressed with the truth that we owe all to sovereign mercy. Uh, Together they knew they trusted in God, that he alone could help them to succeed. But she was, uh, it appears, always a rock and an encouragement to him. I look forward to meeting her someday as much as I do look forward to meeting her husband. Amazing woman, as is his mother. But they did arrive in Jamaica safely in 1825, and that began a seven-year period of ministry. So we'll consider that now. The Nibs arrived safely in February of, 20, of 1825. The Baptist mission there had begun in 1814, and William and Mary were just the seventh missionary couple to serve there. What the Nibs did not realize is that as they came to the island, the island was in the throes, in the, in the uh, throes is the wrong word, but it was experiencing a genuine spiritual awakening among the African slaves of Jamaica. They just landed in a beautiful place. Nib settled in as schoolmaster of the Baptist Mission School in Kingston, attended by many slave children, but mostly by African children whose parents had gained their freedom. He also started a Sunday school, so was working six days a week with the children. Uh, he excelled at this work, but in time he also began to fill in at, at, at various churches to, to preach on the Lord's Day. There would be many sick pastors uh, sometimes pastors would die, and so there was many opportunities for a fill-in speaker. They also were, were travels that would take place. And he, would begin, he began to travel around the island on the Lord's Day, and, and, and it allowed him a, a real acquaintance with the powerful effects the gospel was having on the lives of African slaves. And he got in the middle of that and loved it. He found, himself in, uh, found for himself an enthusiastic reception and sweet fellowship, especially among the plantation slaves. In an early visit to Mount Charles, he preached to a congregation of 1,000 slaves who begged him to return and minister the gospel to them. There was just this, this, this deep interest in the gospel of Christ. Very soon, Nib's relationship with the white population of the island came to stand in stark contrast to this warm reception by the slaves. In a letter addressed to Mr. Nichols, one of the members of the committee that was managing Nib, 
he wrote this, I have now reached the land of sin, disease, and death, where Satan reigns with awful power and carries multitudes captive at his will. The poor oppressed, benighted, and despised sons of Africa form a pleasing contrast to the debauched white population. What does he mean by white population? He's not talking about his fellow missionaries from England, of course. What he's talking about here are the plantation owners, the magistrates, and the pro-slavery press who vehemently and treacherously protected their positions of power by opposing missionary outreach to slaves. To the white power brokers, the closer slaves were viewed as beasts of burden or breathing tools, the better. Religious education of slaves was seen by many plantation owners as detrimental to the institution of slavery, and their view of William Nibb fell as low as his view of them. Nibb's views of slavery were certainly fine-tuned by his experience in Jamaica. They weren't created there. Uh, Before he arrived, life in Jamaica merely cemented his aversion to the practice, but before he arrived, he wrote a letter to his mother Uh, This is after he arrived, but soon after. He's formed these ideas already, and they would not have been unprecedented by any means in in England, but it was a very divisive issue. But he said this in a letter to his mother, the cursed blast of slavery has, like a pestilence, withered almost every moral bloom. I know not how any person can feel a union with such a monster, such a child of hell. For myself, I feel a burning hatred against it and look upon it as one of the most odious monsters that ever disgraced the earth. The slaves are sunk below the brute, and the iron hand of oppression daily endeavors to keep them in their ignorance to which it has reduced them. So keep them ignorant. That's the agenda. When contemplating the withering scene, my heart sickens and I feel ashamed that I belong to a race that can indulge in such atrocities. Just in case you wonder what he thought. <laughs> pretty, pretty clear, isn't it? He's not pulling punches here. During the first five years of his ministry, Nib was a force of nature. He established schools, and think of it. He's going against the power brokers who want to maintain ignorance. He's creating schools and teaching, uh, raising money for the construction of primitive school buildings, traversing the island on Sundays as a fill-in preacher, helping plant new churches, establishing prayer meetings, including establishing prayer meetings on some of the plantations. On the Lord's Day, thousands of slaves were flocking to the churches, and Nib was privileged to proclaim the word to many who had never heard an accurate presentation of the gospel. What What a joy. Conversions were witnessed in droves. Nib led midweek prayer meetings that drew as many as 1,000 people. Eventually, he did leave Kingston and his work as a schoolmaster and went to the uh, towns of Savannah Lamar and Ridgeland, where he ministered as pastor in those two places for a short time, raising money to build sizable chapels in these places. Remember that. Sizable chapels were, were built in, in these places. Um, well, where do we, what do we think? What does Satan think of all of this? When in the history of Christianity has Satan ever left the church alone when the gospel is spreading 
successfully. The House of Assembly, the primary legislative power in Jamaica, rendered it illegal for slaves to preach or teach. And they had, this is a quote from them, as Anabaptists or otherwise, <laughs> which is a way of saying those Baptist people, I pay attention here. It is illegal for slaves to preach or teach. This new law was a direct attack on prayer gatherings, many of which were led by slaves. It sought to end efforts to train slaves to preach. After passage of this law, Sam Swinney, a deacon of the church at Savannah Lamar, where um, Nib was, was pastoring, was arrested, whipped, and jailed for preaching. All Swinney had actually done was lead in prayer. But Nib labored energetically to gain Swinney's freedom, although he was unable to do it. The House of Assembly, here I'll just start to stack on top the opposition. The House of Assembly passed a law forbidding church gatherings after dark. What did that do? This hindered many slaves who were not free to worship on the Lord's Day with the churches so they would come to the evening service after they had worked all day on the plantations. But now there was no longer freedom to hold a service after dark. The House of Assembly also rendered it illegal to collect money from slaves. What does that do? It steals their capacity to worship through giving as little as they made. When Nib and other missionaries reported these atrocities to England, they were pilloried in Jamaica's pro-slavery press. And when I say pro-slavery press, I'm not saying you know there's a pro-slavery newspaper and the abolitionist newspaper. No, the, that, there was only the pro-slavery press. That was the, the dominant position on the island. And so they did everything they could to attack Nib and his fellow missionaries. For instance, they accused the missionaries of extorting money from the slaves. Think about that one. Uh, like they had a lot of money to give away, but that, that's what they were accusing them of. And it went to the absolutely ridiculous. They accused Nib of baptizing slaves naked. Well, it means absolutely nothing. Everybody knows that these things are not true. Everybody but those in England that are receiving these reports. They don't know. Maybe this is what's happening. Maybe these are, are, are faithful reports. The authorities also demanded then licensure for all preachers. And then they just denied Nib a license. He did preach anyway and uh, took great risk in doing so. It was never, never stopped. But other missionaries were jailed for preaching during this period. There's a, a, a wonderfully helpful passage in uh, Johnson's um, commentary in the book of Acts, uh, he says the coming kingdom upset. Here's what's going on. The coming kingdom upsets human structures of power and control, threatening the status quo and provoking the opposition of the status quo's custodians and beneficiaries. Who's running the show and profiting off of these atrocities? When God's kingdom spreads through the Spirit and the Word, it shakes to its roots the system of power and profit in which the pillars of society have sought their security, threatened with the loss of what in the end they cannot keep. They retaliate against messengers who offer a priceless gift that cannot be lost. 
God's kingdom initiates the overturning of the patterns of pride and exploitation that permeate sinful human society. Those with a vested interest in maintaining the injustices of the status quo cannot be expected to welcome God's good news to the poor, His release of the oppressed through the gospel. During these increasingly tumultuous years, Nib ministered frequently to a congregation of slaves at Falmouth, endearing himself to them. And in the providence of God, there was a, uh, their pastor died. Uh, uh, quick aside here, the, the, the ecclesiology that they practiced, the form of the churches and, and their structure would... Uh, would not have been as mature as what we understand today, as biblically rooted and oriented as we see today. But many of these, these, these uh, chapels would be led by one English missionary as the pastor, and then there would be um, thousands sometimes of congregants that would, would come. The church was, was immature, it was growing, there was a lot of things that needed to develop, but this pastor died, and missionary Thomas Birchall, who became a, a close friend of William Nibbs, and they, they just served faithfully together through their lifetimes, but he submitted Nibbs, Nibbs' name to the congregation as a potential replacement. Birchall reported on the meeting of four to five hundred mostly black parishioners. This is what he said of that meeting. I proposed Mr. Nib and requested a show of hands. I never saw such a scene. The whole church to an individual simultaneously rose and held up both hands and burst into tears. My feelings were overcome and I wept with them. That this man would come and pastor us. They were thrilled. Nib would shepherd that church until his death. The church grew rapidly in 1830, so five years after he arrived in Jamaica. There were 700 members in attendance. There were 2,000 inquirers. This is a time of awakening. This is a time where the gospel is having tremendous effects upon the society. So what are inquirers? 2,000 people were coming to the chapel that were not seen as Christian. They were not yet recognized as members of the church, but they, were, they had entered into the category of inquirers. That is, people who were interested in Christianity, perhaps interested in joining the membership. There was a fairly capable, a careful process of vetting the members, and so 700 were members, 2,000 were inquirers as the church started. The church purchased property, and Nib raised money to expand the chapel from Falmouth, he oversaw ministry of various chapels. More were being built, and uh, there were, he was watching over uh, chapels that with, with accumulated attendance of about 5,000 people. When their missionary, uh, I'm sorry, uh, from Falmouth, he ministered to slaves three evenings per week at several plantation states. So there, there's just a massive response to the gospel that's almost overwhelming in, in the capacity to handle it. 
Well, a bitter providence visits the island at this point, and that is the slave revolt in 1831-1832. British Parliament abolished transatlantic slave trade in 1807. That's going to Africa and bringing slaves. But it continued to debate whether or not to end slavery in the British colonies, such as Jamaica. But a rumor arose among slaves of Jamaica, uh, the, the slaves of Jamaica that Parliament had actually freed them. That what was happening was that the power brokers in Jamaica were just not letting them know. And so they actually were free, but weren't able to be free because of those that were controlling them and the plantation owners and the like. Well, this rumor led to the conclusion that the masters really had no power over them, and so they conspired to refuse to work on December the 27th, 1831. The slaves said nothing of this to the missionaries. Why? Because they knew they would oppose it. This is not the right approach. This is not going to be effective. The slaves did, so, so they didn't inform them. But the Baptist Missionary Society, coupled with this idea, had placed their missionaries under strict orders not to speak of liberation for slaves to the slaves. So no missionary was ever to speak a word of abolition to slaves. Why? The society was convinced that this would fuel insurrection but would only hinder the spread of the gospel in a season of great fruitfulness. So go and preach the gospel. Keep it at that. Don't speak beyond it. And the missionaries had honored that principle. Back to the account. On December 26, the missionaries learned of the revolt. So so it was hidden from them until the day before the the, revolt. Their slaves were not going to show up to work. And Nibs sprung into action. He pleaded with his members to disperse to the plantations and plead with slaves to go to work on December 27th. But despite these earnest efforts, many slaves revolted. They burned sugar works and plantation buildings to the ground across Jamaica. Well, how does the military, the militia there in Jamaica, how do they respond? There is a slave revolt going on, and they're burning down our estates. We're going to squash this. They killed many slaves in this revolt. Nib's chapel in Falmouth was burned to the ground, as were several other chapels that he had labored to erect in the area. The militia assumed that the Baptists were inciting the riot. Without cause, the militia arrested Nib and took him seven hours by canoe to Montego Bay. By the time he reached land, tropical environment, he was severely ill. Now this is not looking good. He's severely ill. He's not in his home location where anybody can help him that knows him. He's been shipped out on purpose for that reason, to isolate him. And he is now being charged with being at the heart of this insurrection. He was rushed to the courthouse and placed in the jury box under guard of four soldiers. Twice they threateningly pointed a bayonet at his heart. One little, and he's gone. 
He was so sick, he pleaded to lie down on the floor. And they said, lie down on that floor and we will shoot you where you lay. He reported later, no fault had I committed. With none was I charged. But I was a missionary and that was enough. I was calm and happy and thankful that I felt a disposition to pray for my enemies who were taunting me that I should be shot on the morrow and pleasing themselves with the sport. It's hard not to see Jesus there, isn't it, Uh, in the night of his capture. While he was incarcerated, plantation owners went to work trying to conspire a way to get in and to assassinate Nib. And the press went wild with slanderous allegations against him, hoping to influence his deportation to England. Remember that idea. They want him to go back to England. Be careful what you wish for. The authorities held him in jail for seven weeks. They searched his house, looking for some reason to charge him, found nothing. Witnesses were sought who would accuse him, but none was found. He was widely condemned by those in power as having incited the uprising, but in the end, only three of his 980 members at Falmouth Chapel were prosecuted. Many church members had actually listened to him and gone to the plantations to defend them against the insurrectionists. But despite these efforts, I mean, he gave himself wholeheartedly to keeping the peace. And he was accused of doing exactly the opposite. When the dust settled sometime later, it became clear that there there was no Christian slave that was part of the instigating the revolt. It was just those who were not members of churches. Again, the power brokers were making it exactly the opposite. The efforts to assassinate Nib, the efforts made by others to preserve his life, to protect his property, would require a lot more time than we have. Suffice it to say that in all these travails, Mary never wavered, but remained the chief source of comfort and encouragement to William. You can imagine the, the, what she's going through as her husband is canoed seven hours away and imprisoned. The authorities evicted the nibs from their house that they had rented. Friends risked their lives to rescue furnishings from the nibs' home uh, before they were stolen or destroyed, but in their haste they did about as much damage as would have been done anyway, and the furniture wasn't worth much. The nibs were in that revolt reduced to poverty. But they took refuge in the home, this, if this isn't beautiful, in the home of a black woman who was a member in their church. <laughs> That's where they went to live. The Colonial Church Union, this would be now the state church, uh, uh, the Church of England, at this extremely difficult season, a number of plantation owners joined forces with pastors of the Church of England to form a partnership intended to expel evangelicals from Jamaica and end biblical instruction of slaves. Can you imagine being a Christian pastor and laboring that it would be established that no slave can learn. Their efforts betrayed a realization that preaching the gospel to slaves undermined the institution of slavery. They got that, and they labored against it. 
Well, it's, a, it's quite the story, and it would make quite the movie uh, these days of, of all kinds of intrigue. But suffice it to say, Nib was released from prison, and when he was, his fellow missionaries said, we want you to go back to England and tell them what's actually happening here. Someone has to go back and represent us, and you're the man to do it. He had clearly by this point risen to a point of leadership among his peers. They had chosen him for this, and he went back to England, which he assumed to never see again. But he and Mary um, went back with with their uh, children to work for Jamaica and for the missionaries in, um, in Britain. So this is the first visit that they will make back to Britain, and the goal is to free the slaves and rebuild the chapels. Maybe we need to stand up or just take a commercial break here or something, but I've got to get through this section if we're going to get where we're going. So feel free to walk around too if you need to, or leave if you want to. But um, this is now a completely different chapter. Everything changes here. They go back uh, by sea to Britain to accomplish two major things. First, to travel the length and breadth of the British Isles to plead for the end of colonial slavery. That That is one effort that will be made. The second is to convince the Baptist Missionary Society first and then British Parliament to supply funds to rebuild the chapels that have been burned by the British militia that are stationed there in Jamaica. So if they would take responsibility and grant money to rebuild these chapels, that is the goal. Winning the support of the Baptist Missionary Society is first. If he can't do that, he's not going to be able to convince Parliament. They're going to say your own people don't side with you. That itself was not an easy task. Not because he had a difficulty arguing for the abolition of slaves. The the committee was with him on that. But there was a far more moderate approach among the committee members. And so he had to work hard. And what he, what he really, the, really the essence of his message was that he, start, he, he started by laboring to move the committee to see that the spread of the gospel and the health of Jesus' church in Jamaica was inseparable from the liberation of 800,000 slaves. He understood the distinction between the abolitionist movement and the cause of the gospel. That was clear to him. But slavery itself and those who oversaw the system now stood in direct opposition to the spread of the gospel and to the health of the churches in Jamaica. Let me just play that out practically. An enslaved woman worked all day in the sugar fields and could not care for her family as any Christian mother would do. And think in that day particularly, pretty clear division of male and female responsibilities. These were teaching in our churches that women would care for their homes, care for their children. These women can't do that. They come home utterly exhausted every day. Their children, enslaved children, are not permitted to learn to read. They're they're separated from education. That would have have varied to some degree, but they're not allowed 
the kind of education necessary to read the Bible. Enslaved men, women, and children were typically forced to work on Sundays, and thus they could not, after conversion, attend a local church. Many were limited to weekly prayer meetings on their plantations. So at the very moment in history that the slaves' reception of the gospel was at fever pitch, slavery blocked many of them from hearing the word of the Lord in the assembly, from receiving the Lord's Supper, from giving to God's work, from building a strong family life. So reporting the glories of a genuine spiritual awakening among the slaves, William won over the committee to his cause, remained a fixed, and it remained a fixed source of support for him to the end of his life. But as I said, it was a task. It wasn't easy. There were some committee members who uh, found it difficult to stomach some of his fiery rhetoric He pleaded passionately for them to understand that if you stood where I stood and watched the tortures that I am watching, you would understand and you would argue with zeal to abolish slavery immediately. During one speech, Nib graphically recounted his eyewitness account of an infant slave being flogged on a plantation, probably to punish the baby's mother. There's a man, Mr. Dyer, who is the moderator of the meeting and a moderate in all of these areas and probably a very staid Englishman that wanted everything you know, pressed nicely and kept calm. He reached out and grabbed the coattail of Nib's coat and pulled on it while he's speaking to basically say, you know, like, like reins on a horse, like, come, slow down here, buddy. This is a little dramatic which backfired because Nib really got hot then. (laughs) And he uh, spoke with zealous flurry of attacks against slavery. And this he continued to do. But again, the key message of the committee that they needed to grasp was that missionaries had carefully avoided talk of insurrection. They had not spoken to slaves of liberation. They had followed the committee's policy. Remember that. The submission to that committee and to this policy, they knew was for the good of the gospel, and they had been honorable in, in protecting against that. But now that the insurrection had taken place, they needed to understand that the power brokers in Jamaica wanted to crush the gospel. They wanted all missionaries gone. They wanted all churches ended. They wanted their system to be kept intact. And Nib essentially pointed a finger at the chest of the committee and said, you have got to act. We have to do something. Abolition of slavery was the only answer to them, the only answer to advance the gospel. So having won the support of the committee... He went on to, through the length and breadth of the British Empire, speaking against the atrocities of slavery, hoping now to move the the British Empire to uh, work against slavery. Uh, Every opposition that he faced in Jamaica was now the exact opposite as he went to adoring crowds of thousands of people that cheered through his speeches. He was preaching to the choir 
but as we say, but he was also able to inflame the choir, and he really stirred up a lot of action there, which is interesting because in, in Jamaica he stood up against the opposition. In Britain he handled the adulations, the support and the applause of the crowd. Both handled well. Uh, this is a picture from August 15, 1832, in a speech at Exeter Hall where Spurgeon would later speak before securing the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. There are massive crowds. Then, of course, as there is popularity, there's always going to be opposition. And a certain Peter Bothwick followed Nib on the lecture circuit. He maligned his character. He perpetuated the lie that Baptist leaders had instigated the insurrection. He defended slavery, but Nib's abilities were so great, his, his his speech is so persuasive that uh, Bothrich ended up, Borthrich, Borthwich ended up altering his position and calling for a slow emancipation, which did not draw Nib any closer. He continued to say, it has to end now. It has to end now. His speeches were clear, they were straightforward, they were hard-hitting, and they rested on the indisputable argument that these people were people made in the image of God, that there was utterly no justification of harming them and using them as slaves, and that Parliament needed to act. Well, eventually he got a hearing before Parliament. Now think of this. He's coming into Parliament and is charged with being the one who has instigated this insurrection. I don't think Parliament's believing that as such, but that's the charge. And so it came as more, less of a testimony, more as an interrogation before Parliament. In the sweet providence of God, he could stand before Parliament and answer every question and say, our society, our missionary society, demanded that we never speak of abolition to slaves, and we followed that policy. We had utterly nothing to do with it. And that was used by God to get the parliament behind him and behind the missionaries. And parliament did two things. The very things he went for. They freed the slaves beginning August 1st, 1833. Not that William Nibb accomplished that by himself, but he was very influential in this decision. And secondly, they agreed to give substantial amounts of money for the re-erection of the chapels. I'm going to try to get this done real fast here. If you just push with me a little longer. Family life. The Nibs arrived on the return to England with a son and two daughters the twin of their oldest son having died ten days after birth. While in England, Mary gave birth to Andrew Fuller Nib, but after only three months, he died. Stricken with grief, just thinking of all that's pressing upon this couple and, and this man particularly as he spoke, he has this tragedy to deal with. And he said this, What a mercy, however, to be prepared for all the will of him who is for all the will of him who is too wise to err and too good to be unkind. Well, back 
in Jamaica, the Falmouth Church is advancing. It's growing. Uh, there is a major celebration on the Day of Liberation. We'll come back to that next week, Lord willing. But uh, the pro-slavery establishment, how do they respond to the liberation of slaves? All they do is just come up with a different system. Okay, we won't call you slaves, but you are our property. Now that our property is gone, you need to purchase your freedom. So they called it the apprenticeship system, which demanded that the slaves earn their freedom, so they paid them horrifically low wages and put very high cost on their liberation. They're just continuing slavery. They just continued the very process, just, or, or, or the same thing through a different process. They found a way to keep slaves enslaved, and the system of oppression continued apace. If a slave said, well, I'm not going to work for that, I'm free now, I don't have to do your work, what these plantation owners would do is just say, and we will take your house. They had nowhere to live. The houses were horrific shacks, but it was coverage from the weather. That's all they owned. Now they were without a place to live. So liberation or not, the plantation owners and legislators conspired to rig the system so as to continue to make money off the labors of Africans. Transitioning from a slave-based economy to a free economy is no easy process, and the Nibs would find themselves at the heart of that battle when they got back to Jamaica. And all that we um, know of the journey by sea back to Jamaica involved uh, nothing more than sailing around a hurricane, as well as facing some uh, unhelpfully calm seas. But they arrived on October the 25th of 1834, back in Jamaica for a second stint of ministry there. And we will, by God's grace, pick up the account at that place next week. <laughs>